Welcome to the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. I'm Ken Wong and with me is Dr. Ben Thompson, currently a research associate at the centre and who will be moving to Monash University in Melbourne from January. Ben has been conducting research on mangrove forests for about 10 years and joins us today to discuss his new research paper about the large animals that are found in mangroves and how they can be used to support mangrove conservation. So Ben, what are mangroves? So mangroves are a group of salt-tolerant trees and shrubs. They're found along coastlines in the tropics and subtropics. And they're quite special because they're one of the few types of vegetation which is inundated by the tide, by the sea. So at some points in the day, they'll be submerged with water, at least up to about one metre in height. And at other times of the day, uh, they'll be dry and you can walk around their muddy sediments. Some of these species are adapted. They have prop roots, for example, which elevates the main part of the tree above the high tide. Some have leaves which excrete salt and there's around about 70 different species of mangroves in the world and a lot of those species are found in Southeast Asia. Southeast Asia is a biodiversity hotspot. By far the most uh, mangrove forest is, is found in Indonesia. As you touched on there, mangroves play an important role in climate regulation. They're particularly important for climate change mitigation because like all vegetation, they take in carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and they store this in their biomass. So they're important to humankind on a global scale in that regard. Mm. And of course, the interesting thing about mangroves is that uh, they primarily occur in that tropical band, right, around yeah, the equator. That's um, correct. Yeah. And the other thing about them is that in some ways, they also prevent uh, land erosion from rising seas, right? Because they're right on the coast. Yeah, that's correct. Is that by definition where they are? Yeah, they will typically be found where the land meets the sea. Um, sometimes we get what we call estuarine mangroves that will, you know, may extend up um, a river mouth and an estuary a little bit, but they're generally found in brackish or salt water. So that does dictate where they can be found uh, in the world. And again, they're tropical, so they'll be found in the lower latitudes. But they do protect the coastline from erosion. Um, they can protect villages, reduce the amount of damage in villages, for example, when there's a big storm or cyclone and from storm surges and, and things like that, but not necessarily from a tsunami. So a lot of mangroves were planted in the aftermath of the 2004 Asian tsunami uh, because people thought that mangroves could uh, you know, protect the homes from this, this huge damage. But of course, tsunami waves can be very, very strong and there's only so much any vegetation can do in, in that situation. But so where was this, the northern tip of Sumatra, where they were planting? Throughout, I mean, a lot was conducted in, in Thailand. Mm -hmm. Some reports were written, some scientists said some things and it may have been uh, over-elaborated a little bit, the, the extent to which mangroves can dissipate the tremendous energy which is expelled by a tsunami wave. But smaller scale storms, normal sort of waves, certainly mangroves help buffer the coast and um, solidify the sediments and help prevent erosion in this regard. So in many ways, what you're also saying here is, um, by implication, mangroves really are at the front line, right, of somehow helping mitigate um, rising sea levels. 
Yeah, certainly mitigating the, the impact of, of rising sea levels. Of course, to some extent, mangroves are certainly threatened by sea level rise, especially when sometimes because of coastal development, we've built infrastructures on the coast and then there's nowhere for mangroves to move inland as sea levels rise you know so they could be could be trapped between rising seas and and human development on the other side that is one of the threats uh, to mangroves for sure sea level rise now the thing you've been looking at is what uh, you'd call megafauna in these mangroves now could you describe what you mean by megafauna and what are they doing in these mangroves sure Briefly, you know, it's well known that mangroves provide a habitat to lots of smaller animals, such as crabs, mudskippers, uh, shrimp when they are inundated, worms, animals like this. But uh, a new research paper that I've conducted with, with a colleague of mine, uh, Stephanie Rogg at Wetlands International, we sort of catalogue some of the larger animals that are found either permanently or periodically uh, in mangroves. So. The megafauna is, is really just a scientific term for a large animal. And what we usually look for is, is charismatic megafauna, so iconic animals of which we have now documented quite a few have been seen or do occur or do utilise mangroves in some way, in some places around the world. Great. And the reason for this is because, as your research paper has been exploring, um, you want to, in a way, find these so-called iconic megafauna in mangroves to help uh, in campaigns uh, save this environment, right? Yeah, so there's this um, approach in conservation called flagship species. And flagship species are used strategically to front a conservation effort, so like a fundraising campaign or a marketing campaign to try and change uh, the attitudes of the general public or local coastal communities, for example, regarding mangroves. Because, you know, a lot of local people in, in Southeast Asia and in the tropics who, who live near these ecosystems probably will have some appreciation for mangroves. But if we think about people that live away from the coast or in temperate latitudes, I think you know, I'm British, some of my friends back home, for example, will have a very limited understanding and appreciation of what mangroves are. But what we're really discussing in our research paper is how we can leverage upon the fact that mangroves support some of these large animals and use those to our advantage as people that want to conserve and restore mangroves and use them as uh, almost an icon of what, what mangroves are and what they represent. classic example of, of flagship species would be the use of the polar bear as an icon for the Arctic and for climate change. Another example would be the orangutan, which is an icon of the Borneo rainforests uh, and is used in anti-oil palm movements, for example. So we want to now take this sort of application of flagship species and consider the opportunities and challenges that it could offer to, to mangrove conservation. And so what, what type of animals have you found that you think might be great candidates for this? Sure. Well, sticking with Borneo, one classic animal that is found in mangroves is the proboscis monkey. Some people might be familiar with this. Some people may not be. Uh, it's like a sort of medium-sized primate ginger and cream fur, and it has a very elongated lobe-like nose uh, hanging down from its face. Uh, it makes some interesting sounds, which I have here. These are some social calls. Uh, 
Yeah, they're very social animals and they've been shown to uh, enjoy sleeping in mangrove trees and mangroves constitute a part of their diet. So that would be one example. A slightly more unusual example is something called a sawfish. So this is one of the most critically endangered species of fish in the world. Very, very large, can grow up to about five, six meters in length. Looks a little bit like a shark, but it has a very long, elongated nose, essentially, which we call a rostra, which literally looks like a saw. So it has these, these little teeth protruding from the sides. Some people might have seen this animal in um, aquariums and things like that. They're usually in the, the big flagship tank that you see at the end of spending a day in an aquarium. Saltwater fish. Uh, Saltwater fish, yeah. Although they like to pup in brackish water, including mangroves, mm. because when they give birth to live young in mangroves, those young can survive better amongst the prop roots uh, where there are less predators and where there's a more available source of food and they grow bigger uh, before eventually moving to the open ocean or the, or the near shore ocean areas when they're a little bit bigger and can defend themselves from predators better. So the sawfish is another uh, good example which we found in our research. And then, of course, maybe the most iconic of all animals, the tiger, the Bengal tiger, is also found in mangroves, particularly in a, a large forest called the Sundarbans, which straddles India and Bangladesh. So we're just a, a neighbor to Southeast Asia. And the Sundarbans mangrove forest is really the final stronghold for the Bengal tiger. Uh, some of the largest populations of tiger are found in this forest. And it's mainly because the Sundarbans is so huge that humans have not really been able to uh, to penetrate. It's just a big labyrinth of swamp. It would take you days to travel around this forest by boat. And the tiger essentially survives there because humans haven't been able to get to it. But certainly a lot of villages do fringe the border of the Sundarbans, which is now a protected forest. But there are still uh, some issues regarding the tiger. If it wanders into one of these villages, for example, mm. uh, maybe a situation which we call uh, human wildlife conflict, where either the tiger or a, a villager would unfortunately end up uh, end up dead. How many tigers are there, do you think? There? I think, yeah. well, globally, I think based on the last assessment, there's around 3,000 tigers. Bengal tigers? Yeah, but in the Sundarbans of Bangladesh, I think it's in the hundreds, maybe around 300. Then there's the Sundarbans, the Indian side of the Sundarbans. And then there's other pockets, there's other populations elsewhere um, on the Indian subcontinent. Um, I did actually spend six months some years ago working for a, a tiger conservation group called Wild Team in, in Bangladesh who are really leading the the effort on, on tiger conservation mm. uh, over there. Why, why do you think the tigers, for instance, would, you know, inhabit uh, these mangroves? Alluding to, to my previous point there, they're not great swimmers. Mm. It's hard to see how a tiger would relish living in a mangrove compared to possibly some other habitat types. Certainly there are a supply of prey for them in the Sundarbans, so as well as the tigers. Um, this particular mangrove forest also supports other types of megafauna, such as the spotted deer. So this is a typical um, prey source for the tiger. So, uh, you know, it really is there uh, because because it's it's more safe there than, than elsewhere, I would I would say. 
um, and there's a supply of prey for it to eat. But that forest is only so big and it can only support a tiger population of a certain size in the hundreds rather than in the thousands. Right. So those three big animals, so to speak, would be what you would propose could help in terms of raising awareness, helping fundraising for conservation? Yeah, I think these would be um, three three good choices. There are other animals which have been seen uh, in mangroves. Um, there's a study uh, looking at lemurs, mm-hmm. you know, um, being spotted in mangroves in Madagascar. There's studies on uh, kangaroos being seen and and distributing uh, mangrove seeds through their their excrement uh, along the coastlines of of Australia. For example, um, all sorts of animals, manatees. You know these iconic marine mammals um, may may sea cows. Sea cows, yeah, they'll they'll uh, utilize mangroves to some extent as well. But the evidence for some of these mangrove animal interactions is very limited. So when we think about how creditable a fundraising campaign might be, for example, we need to be careful with our with our choice of flagship species. We need to ensure that if we're if we're telling the general public to donate to this this cause to conserve the mangroves because it supports a population of lemurs, for example, but we don't have the scientific evidence to back that up, then then that's a dangerous territory. Because we need more zoological and ecological studies on, in this case, for example, how lemurs, exactly how they utilise the mangroves, how much time they spend in that uh, ecosystem compared to other ecosystems and of course in that case the survival of the lemur or there's many many species of lemur but the survival of those animals is unlikely to depend on on mangroves Mm -hmm. in the case of the bengal tiger and that population uh, in bangladesh the links are, are much more clear because we have conducted ecological census techniques we know how many their behavioural studies yes. have been conducted and, and this sorts of things. So mm. we have to be careful which uh, animals we choose and base it on scientific uh, evidence. So, so in terms of trying to get policymakers to focus on this, I mean, what information or idea do you have as to which of these animals would they necessarily go for or they go for these main three that you've described? And how far along are we in terms of trying to get something like this going? Hmm. I mean, a little bit related to the, the scientific aspect, uh, there's also the, uh, I suppose, the ethical aspect. If we think about animals like crocodiles, which are also found in mangroves, particularly in the Philippines, I used to used to live in Singapore, man- uh, crocodile, big crocodiles were seen in mangroves of Singapore from time to time. Mm. And tigers, these are carnivores, and local, local villagers, Local citizens might not be too happy about the fact that they live adjacent to these these predators. Um, so while while these animals can captivate and inspire donations and support for mangroves, perhaps from from other countries, Europe, North America, for example, where mangroves aren't found, these these human populations are essentially living on the front line interacting with these potentially dangerous animals on a day-to-day basis so the choice of that particular animal might not go down too well there that being said wild team the organization i briefly mentioned in bangladesh have a big education and outreach campaign to try and inform and 
give a sense of pride to local villagers living on the fringe of the Sundarbans mangrove forest to try and encourage them to, if a tiger, for example, walks into into a village, remain calm. They have a tiger response team that can tranquilize and relocate it and, and to try and sort of reduce the likelihood that there is a, an incident, uh, shall we say. Mm. Now, tigers and some of the other animals I've mentioned, uh, manatees, for example, these are very well-known animals and it's highly likely they've featured in fundraising campaigns for one cause or another before. And again, this could make the, the campaign, the cost of running the campaign, a little bit cheaper. But some people, some studies have shown that people might be a little bit more reluctant to part with money for the tiger again, for example, or the manatee again. Um, something we call flagship fatigue. People may be less willing to, to donate to animals that they have already donated for. Of course, mangroves support many other weird shall we say, um, animals, so using the sawfish and its unusual rostra, using the proboscis monkey and its unusual face, then there's the, the pygmy three-toed sloth, which is this primate which lives uh, on just on one island in Panama, it featured on the BBC documentary Planet Earth 2, um, David Attenborough recently. These might be more strategic animals to choose for policymakers and practitioners to, to select. Is there an idea in terms of what type of <clears throat> funds or campaigns that they want to spend or you know invest in? I mean, to what size or scale? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point as well, because whoever's launching this campaign has to have a very clear target audience. Are they doing it primarily to raise funds for the species? which would typically mean appealing to wealthy people in in certain parts of the world, or are they trying to change local attitudes and local behaviours towards mangroves? Some people in the tropics, they still see mangroves as, you know, mosquito-infested swamps, which are riddled with malaria and, and, and these sorts of narratives. But those two sort of target audiences require a completely different approach in, in the information that is put across, and possibly in, in, in the type of animal which is, is used to, mm. to front that. You know, some studies have shown that crocodiles have successfully been used as, as flagship species to reduce coastal development, I think, uh, in the Philippines. People obviously weren't particularly keen on keeping mangroves and other coastal habitats because the crocodiles live there and the crocodiles are a threat. But, you know, some education and outreach efforts have helped help change those perceptions. Mm. So, but that's the squeeze, really, right? Between mm. human demands for how the environment needs to shape to their needs versus trying to save it maybe for the broader issue of climate change and so on. Yeah, absolutely. So there's obviously a competition for space in, in many mm. parts of the world now between between humankind and uh, other inhabitants of this planet. And that is that is going to become increasingly problematic as, as we move forward. And climate change is only going to exacerbate that uh, situation for sure. And it sort of muddies these campaigns a bit, doesn't it, so to speak? Um, certainly in that case, if, if we are talking about the carnivores, yep, it is certainly problematic. And uh, again, it's something that some you know, limited number of organizations focusing on conserving these species are, are looking at. Mm. You know, don't want to sort of focus too much on on tigers and crocodiles because there are a lot of other options out there 
there are some policy provisions out there already to sort of enable the use of flagship species. So the World Conservation Union has uh, a mangrove specialist group, a group of practitioners and and scientists with an interest in mangroves, and they've issued um, statements to advocate the use of flagship species for mangrove conservation around the world. So there's that sort of like support there uh, offered by a big global body. And then there's also the Ramsar Convention on International Wetlands of International Importance and some of their criteria as to what can be designated a special wetland or this protected Ramsar site uh, does include provisions for um, you know, those mangrove forests or those wetlands supporting certain types of animal which are critically endangered or have a small population size, for example. So there is some policy support in place already. And really the idea of our, our research paper is just to sort of stimulate the discussion and try and encourage a little bit more research on charismatic megafauna in mangroves. Thank you for your time, Ben. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. For more podcasts like this, look up Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at soundcloud.com.